Welcome to Open to Explore, the FBC Athens podcast featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. I'm your host, Frank Granger, Minister of Christian Community. What was your experience with a church or faith community when you were a teenager? And what did it teach you about faith? Our series featuring conversations about church, God, and the pandemic continues today with a one-on-one conversation with Larice Stewart. She shares her experience with these questions and others. So listen now as we explore some of the intersections of faith and life. Joining me today for our conversation is Larice Stewart. Larice, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for offering to have me come in and talk. Of course. Let's start with you telling us a little bit about what you do and where you do that. Well, what I do is I teach Latin down in Morgan County High School. Um, And I started a Latin program there back in 2008, started it with 12 students, and now I have over 120. Um, It's something that I relish every day. I love working with young people. I had previously worked for a law firm and was very grateful for that opportunity um, for 10 years. But really, my heart is with with teenagers. Um, A lot of people are a little intimidated by them, and I just, I look forward to every single day that I have to spend with them. Teenagers learning Latin. Yes. That almost sounds like a rare thing. <laughs> How do they, do they enjoy it? They do. They do. Um, I am at this point getting cousins and brothers and sisters and neighbors and um, like just the whole block uh, coming over to take Latin and the kids actually promote it for me. I really don't have to do a lot of recruiting, although I do hit the band. Um, I have a lot of band students that take Latin. And um, that's by design. I go and recruit some of them, but my own students recruit within that organization. And so I just have a lot of students that want to be in my class. Very good. Were you a band person as well? I was. I, I was, thought so. Yes. I was in color guard for three years in high school and then four years at University of Georgia. Very good. Now, there's one other little tidbit about you that I know. I don't know if it still goes on. You'll have to tell me. But... You would go and do Georgia football one day a year. Tell me about that. Yes, that was um, under head coach Mark Richt. He had a football 101 for women in June, and it was so much fun. And they capped it at 300 women. And if you didn't sign up within like two or three days, you weren't going to get a spot. It was that popular. And um, we were able to learn by multiple aspects of football, and we chose either offense or defense um, each year, and we could rotate that if we wanted to. So I learned offensive line. I learned um, fullback. That was my favorite. Um, <laughs> just to have a, 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 a legal way of hitting someone, just kind of it just kind of felt good. So, <laughs> And I, I was the first fullback that actually caught a pass. Tight end was the hardest one because I was matched up with a, a lady – much older than me, and the coaches had told me, they're like, she's mean, take her out, and I was like, she could be my grandmother, and they're like, we don't care, she's mean as a snake, take her out. (laughs) I didn't believe them, and she, I didn't get off the line of scrimmage, she completely drove me into the ground, and I popped up thinking, what on earth happened, and the coaches are like, we told y'all she was mean, so (laughs) I I didn't really like that year. Because I was taken out by grandmother, but it was a lot of fun. Um, a couple of years, we actually had some ladies get hurt. I had one lady 
bless her heart, tear her ACL while oh, no. doing a stretch. She didn't even really get to take the field. Oh, no. <laughs> but anyway, they uh, treated us to lunch, and they would have people come from the organization where they were um, like referees and officials and that kind of thing. And so they would explain pass interference and holding, and they would answer whatever questions we had. Um, and we actually got to play in the stadium. So it was great. That sounds like so much fun. I'm sure you have a lot of appreciation for Brock Bowers. Yes. I mean, th- just the strength that, that, that he has to have and to be able to run a route and know that you're going to take a hit. I mean, there's just so many things. You have to be a smart person to be a football player. And one of the hardest things was offensive line. Their footwork is incredibly intricate, and then they're they're as big as a house. So you've, you've got all this weight, all this mass, and – if two feet. I mean, everybody has two feet, and that's all you have. And just to be able to move, you know, laterally and and be able to use your hands effectively, it they make it look easy. It's not easy at all. People listening now are going to think they've tuned into the wrong broadcast <laughs> that, talking about Georgia football. Uh, we're going to talk about some other subjects. One of those is your childhood church experiences. Tell me a little bit about your years of. A child and adolescent and your experience with church. Okay. Mine is probably more different than a lot of people here at First Baptist. Um, I went as a small child to church maybe a year or two. I was probably five, maybe six or seven, and um, went to a small country church. And my dad really liked the pastor, and the deacons were having some kind of argument with the pastor. I have no idea what it was. Um, and it apparently got really heated, and my dad said, we're just not going back anymore. And um, we didn't, and I didn't um, go anywhere for the rest of my elementary years, and I didn't go to church again until the very last part of my eighth grade year um, when a friend of mine invited me to church. Um, They kept talking about all this fun they were having on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights and singing in youth choir and doing mission trips, and I thought you had to be invited. Like, you know, my mom always taught me, make sure that you're invited. Don't just invite yourself to you know, to play dates and to um, spend the night parties and things like that. And I just didn't see churches different from that. And so I just kind of waited to be invited. And luckily, one of my friends, Kimmy Hall, uh, invited me. And she said, hey, I think you'd really like it. And I was like, okay. And I started going and got my parents involved in in church. At least they were coming on Sundays. And it was um, something that I am very grateful for and very thankful for. Um, and when I used to work with the youth, I would always try to encourage them, please invite your friends to Sunday school, to church, to to something that's fun, something that can kind of hook them. Because you just never know. They have made have never stepped inside a church. They may be terrified to come. Mm-hmm. So please extend that, that, that grace and that opportunity for them because you may be the only chance that, that they really get. What denomination was it? It was Baptist. Baptist. It was First Baptist. First Baptist Church Griffin got involved there. The minister of youth was fantastic. Dean Roach uh, was a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, My choir director, Max Hamilton, was just a wonderful guy, and uh, he was a huge uh, Tar Heel fan, and uh, he was a a wonderful uh, tennis player, too. So it it was interesting to to meet these people because at the time, uh, my sister was getting into some trouble um, in in school and kind of finding her way, and I really didn't want to burden mom and dad with having those conversations about maybe, you know, feeling left out or kind of wondering, you know, being concerned for her and, you know, where was her path headed. So the um, minister of youth's main uh, goal was to be open door policy for his youth. 
And if the door was closed, then that meant you were not allowed to linger out by the door and you needed to find a different place to be, um, that he would be with you in a minute, but that he was engaging in a conversation that was not meant for other people's ears. And it was something that we all honored. And it was um, on Wednesday nights, we would go straight from school. We would go to church. We would actually go to different rooms and do homework. We had ping pong tables. We had all kinds of things, you know, things that youth need um, to be able to, to fellowship with each other. There were several times when I would find myself in his in his office, and it was just a very, except for the University of Tennessee stuff everywhere, um, <laughs> it was a very, very warm, warm environment. And it was something that I really needed, um, and I'm to this day grateful for that. Yeah, each of us have some person or persons that really stand out to us, particularly in those adolescent years, uh, that we can confide in or that are nice mentors or role models. Absolutely. For a long time, I really felt like I was probably um, being maybe pulled into ministry as far as youth ministry. Um, it didn't necessarily pan out that I didn't feel the call very long. It may have been that I just kind of ignored it. And so because of that, part of what I do with my young people in school is I mentor them just in different ways. I still have their hearts in my heart. And um, I think that's what every good youth minister would do um, every bad choice that they make I, I feel it for them and I feel it with them um, and they always have a, a fresh start in my classroom every day's a new day um, and I think that's what um, really positive youth role models can do um, for in the ministry with um, with young people I think they need to be able to feel like they can start over or they can come and talk to you and they can be real and not just be what society maybe thinks they should be um, but teenagers definitely need that voice well, it sounds like you found a way to extend ministry in uh, a different kind of setting. Yes. Very good. How long have you been here at First Baptist Church? I have been here, I want to say, since 2000. Okay. And that sounds about right. I came here um, a few times back in the late 90s. And, in fact, I remember I met you um, because I remember when I came back, you said, I don't remember your name, but I remember when you used to come here and you remember where I used to sit. I used to sit in the, the back with the with the slightly older ladies, and they were like my grandparents. And um, and you remembered everything about where I used to sit, and that just that meant a lot to kind of come in knowing really nobody, and having this person shaking my hand that says I remember when you used to come here. So I just felt like it was a place for me. Well, we've enjoyed you being here. Thank you. Uh, and you've done a lot of different things I know in the life of the church. Tell me this though. How does this church experience here compare to your church experience What in terms of their theology and their practice, the style? Uh, what's similar and what's different, uh, particularly from the church in Griffin? A lot of it's actually the same. Mm -hmm. uh, very similar, same denomination. Uh, both of them are CBF churches. The minister that I had growing up, was a wonderful guy. His his sweet wife, Emma, was Sunday school teacher for us. Um, and we could actually say anything in her room. She was very prim and proper, but she understood we were teenagers and we needed to be able to have a safe space. And I remember his use of vocabulary was incredibly lofty to the point where we would like write down trying to spell words and we're like, what does this word mean? <laughs> um, but one of the things that we did, uh, because, you know, back in the day, um, especially high school students are accused of getting in trouble and passing notes and 
goofing off and things like that. You know, they're in church, but they're not really in church. And so our youth minister had us sit down front. Like we all sat together. We took up the first three rows and we had pencil and pad and we were writing down, what does this word mean? What do you mean by this? And we were actually engaged in the service. Um, Now we were still passing notes and that kind of thing, but we were (laughs) doing what we were, you know, kind of supposed to do. Um, I will say at that time, Uh, coming in with Bill and coming in with Paul and and now with Matt, I see a a trend in the ministers, all of them, not just the youth ministers, taking a role in the youth, like the youth are important. And I'm hoping that that's just a a trend and a shift in that trend, not just different location. Um, I haven't, I've only been back to First Baptist Griffin once um, and it was actually when Dr. Morgan was going to be there and he was um, in the pulpit and it was like a big reunion. And so I actually went back and saw him and it was interesting to see him in the pulpit because it, it was, it was as polished as I remember and it was as formal as I remember. And I got some things out of it, but I was finding myself really missing here. Like I wanted to be back here and I was glad to come back here and um, that this is, this is my home. And this is where I want my home church to be. Very good. Uh, we might have to clarify for a few people who could be listening that are not familiar with passing notes. Uh, that would just be an old-fashioned <laughs> form of texting. Absolutely. Um, and it was one that people could actually find, you know, if it dropped on the floor of yes. the church and the custodial staff decided to to sweep up, it could, it could get us into some trouble, at least on the phone's. Um, if you didn't leave your phone somewhere, you didn't really run the risk of that. But yes, old-fashioned passing of the notes. Yeah, passing a note, you could get found out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because we were always really stupid and put our names on it or put some <laughs> kind of identifying information. So we weren't the brightest in the world. <laughs> uh, slow motion social media. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about a favorite Bible story that you have. Oh, wow. A favorite Bible story. Um, well, we're right now working on um, when Jesus is, is walking on the water and Peter's walking on the water and he starts sinking. That one has really resonated with me because we all take our eyes off of where it needs to be. And I appreciate the fact that Jesus doesn't scold him. He doesn't really scold him at all. He, the first thing he does is he catches him. And then he says, why did you take your eyes off of me? But the idea of that rescue and that Jesus, that's what he's there for. He's there to rescue. And then he is reminding where our our vision should be and where our focus should be. And that's something that I think, I've, I'm sure I've heard it many times before. But at this point in my life, you know, we've all, you know, struggled at times. And when our struggle takes our eyes off of where it should be, just the reminder that Jesus is always there. And all we have to do is just start talking to him through prayer. It is a story that we've heard many times. Uh, it's been nice to really visit that story on a repeated basis and uh, explore many more things about it. And my opinions always, or my impressions always been, I wonder what the other what the others were thinking during this encounter, and because people want to beat up Peter a little bit, yeah. I'm thinking. What would the other ones have done? At least he got out of the boat. They were still <laughs> in the boat. And how many people are are willing to take the step out to test their faith? Because that's pretty much what was happening. And a lot of people say they're faithful 
and you really don't know if you are until either you're tempted or you take some kind of action to test that or it's tested for you. And I think we've all been in the position of the other disciples. We've all been in the position of Peter. And so we just have to be careful, you know, not to come out swinging because we kind of know how the story ends. But when we're in the middle of the story, we're not looking at the rest of the story. We're looking at that moment in time. And we just need to be more cognizant of that. Faith has an aspect of giving us a sense of confidence and security, but um, stories like that and some others, uh, some of the other parables Jesus tells, uh, makes a case that risk is very much a part of having faith. Right. And risk is something that we need to, to embrace, and it's scary. And we need to remember when we're looking at other people and, and their encounters and what they're going through, it's real easy for us to kind of come on our faith and rely on our faith. And maybe that person doesn't have that same faith background. Maybe it's the first time they've been tested, or maybe it's the first time they've really looked at what they were unsure of. And it's easy for us to say, I will just have faith. I'll just have faith. And when you're in the middle of it, either you're holding on to faith because that's all you have, or you're not really sure how the faith is going to pan out in your situation. Yeah. Let's do a what-if question. (laughs) If you had the opportunity to take God to dinner, where would you take God to go eat? Oh, my goodness. I would take God. Wow. I've got two different options. I would probably, relying on the, the ability to perform miracles and to be able to help people, probably take him where people would be most apt to need his help. Um, so I'm thinking in the footsteps of Mother Teresa or somewhere where there are a lot of people hurting and then have, have God sit down to dinner there and give some people hope because I've already got hope. I've, you know, I grew up at least in a church for, you know, starting in eighth grade. And so I've got that foundation, but there are people that don't know who God is that they, they're either scared of him. They don't think he exists because they haven't had any kind of positive interaction. Um, and just to give some people some hope, that would be probably what I would do with that wish. Very good. That's a beautiful picture. You said you had two options. What would be the second option? The other one, there's a place that I've been that's absolutely beautiful and magical, um, and um, it's the Isle of Capri. Uh And to be able to go and and just enjoy the beautiful scenery that's there, and the water is gorgeous. Um, There's some, of course, ancient Roman ruins in that location. And just it's, it's just a magical place. I mean, Sophia Loren has a pl- has a place mm. there, so you can imagine. But it's just just to to appreciate the view from the top. Um, there's a really beautiful little overlook that has a, a lovely dining experience. Um, just to be able to do that and say I'm here with God. <laughs> how so, how amazing would that be? So in that setting, having a dining experience, what would be your choice for topic of conversation? Oh, goodness. What what do I need to do to help people that don't have faith? Like, how can I reach out? Uh, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm having to be careful to walk the line of, you know, not pushing religion or even promoting religion. And so I found some creative ways to do that, but maybe soliciting some additional help in maybe kind of 
bringing up conversations and, and doing that without getting into trouble um, and without walking the line past where I should be walking the line. Like, how do I help these teenagers? Because some of them don't, they, they're really struggling. Social media bashing being what it is, they're, they're being tempted way, way, way more than we were ever tempted growing up. Um, the things that they are facing is terrifying to me. And so to ask God, what do I do about that? What would you have me do about that? What are some solutions? What are some conversations to have where we can keep these, these young people safe? Because their world is very different right now. And how do I help their parents help them? Because a lot of the parents don't know what to do. Um, they yeah. take a hands-off approach. You know, technology for us is difficult. Technology for a lot of parents is truly, they have no idea how to interact with it. They don't know how to have a conversation with the child about the technology. And they really don't know of any resources. So I would probably talk to God about how do we get those resources to these parents to help, to help their children, you know, navigate those teenage years and to be, to be smart about what they're doing. I would love to eavesdrop on that conversation. <laughs> the volume and the speed at which stuff comes at teenagers now is uh, so much different. They really don't understand at different ages the the criminal situations that could, that can arise with some of of the things that they're doing, and I'm, I've heard also we we are blessed at my school with having a um, a mental health care professional, and what she's uh, divulged to us just on some some little scale, you know, students are hurting; they're physically hurting themselves because they're hurting emotionally. And they need some kind of release. And I never would have thought to do that as, as a young person. And, and, and it's kids from all different walks of life. It's not any one socioeconomic status. And so we can't even predict which kids are hurting themselves. And mm. so having those conversations and, and looking and being willing to see what you actually see and not sweep things under the rug and say, oh, well, this is just something or to come up with some kind of excuse, like we are actually seeing what we're seeing. Now what do we do about it? Um, and how do we protect these, these young people? Um, and bottom line, I think the technology needs to be taken out of their hands until they can reach a point where they can navigate better decisions um, and they can see things that are long-term. Uh, for instance, they think Snapchat is not long-term, and it very much is. And we're having kids get into some real serious trouble in doing Snapchat because somebody's always just taking a picture of what was on Snapchat and said, there's your proof. And, and the students just don't realize that. And um, just to have somebody come from a God's perspective that can kind of see a much bigger picture than any of us can see, I think we're needing some of that wisdom. We're needing some, what do we do? This is where we are now. What do we do about it? And how do we protect these, these students so that they're making better decisions? Movie ratings give guidelines, you know, for what's appropriate. Now, whether people follow them or not is a different matter, but there is a form of guideline. You reach a certain age to do some things. One of those is drive a car. You have to be old enough and pass at least some test, a couple of tests. Uh, with the technology of phone and social media, we don't really provide much guideline and age cutoffs and things like that. I hear you suggesting some of that. I think um, 
something's got to give. And if and and I'm not saying that government should be the one tagging certain age restrictions and things like that. I think it's going to have to. It really has to. It boils down to the parents. The parents are going to have to stand together. And and what I'm hearing, some of the parents that are at the elementary school. Um, because of what they're seeing at the elementary school level with students and phones, what they're seeing, and and they're not they're making their students be um, the last half of eighth grade before they're getting phones. That's better than sixth grade, which yeah. is what it had been. And I think it took them seeing some fairly nasty things that were coming across the screen, and they're like, okay, somebody's got to stand up. And as a group of parents, there's about twenty parents. Um, and that's a good start that are saying you're not going to get a phone until the last half of your eighth grade year. If you're going to be involved in sports, we have to pick you up anyway. We have the coach's phone number. The coach has our phone number. You don't need a phone to do that. There's a phone in the main office, and you're more than capable of using that. And so um, just having those parents take the bull by the horns, I think that's where it's going to have to start. And I think if, if they will do that, then it, that becomes the norm. And then it gives the students a little longer to start making better decisions and processing, well, this is what my friend is doing, but is this something that I need to be doing? And I think we need to be more realistic with, with teaching the students cause and effect. If you engage in mm-hmm. this kind of behavior, then having, having a district attorney come in and talk to the students and having real conversations is going to open that door. Um, because I think if students understood the difference between misdemeanors and felonies and you wanted to go to college. Well, you were convicted of this, so that's not going to be your option anymore. That's not that's no longer your dream. And I think having those real conversations is going to make them making better decisions. Um, and they're starting to see some of their classmates getting into some pretty severe trouble. And then they several of them said, "Well, if I had known, I wouldn't have done that." And there's some you know that some people consider that a, a cop out, but others are saying, "Well." Perhaps if they did know, they wouldn't have made that choice. Um, it gives, goes back to, you know, texting and driving. One of my students' brother was Caleb Sorhan, and he's the one, the young man who had just finished the first semester of college, and he was texting and driving, and he wound up running into another vehicle head-on and killed him instantly. Mm. And as a result of that, the family has been amazingly giving of their time and their resources and their talent and their pain and suffering to encourage other people to put their cell phones away when they're driving, let somebody else you know, handle the phones while they're driving. And just to have people that have been on the brink of just absolute despair and say, now how can we help somebody else not have to go through this? So that's just an example of you know, parents can promote some really positive change. And I think sometimes if they band together, it gives them more inclination to follow through with that and they can honestly say their child your child you know no child you're not going to get a phone till your eighth grade and you're not the only one so stop telling me that you are because I know 20 other parents who are doing the same thing I'm doing it kind of nips that and it lets the kids be kids and and that's something especially coming after the global pandemic our kids need to be social they need to be playing they need to be having times of make-believe. Let them go out and create different situations and kind of act through that instead of living through somebody else's social media page or living through somebody else's dream of somebody that they happen to see online. Let them let them come up with their own dreams and, and fulfill those. During the pandemic, there were some things that 
slow down. Some of its after effects are going to stay with us for quite a while. It's a very challenging time, and I'm sure you can speak to that as a teacher uh, of how challenging it was. There were also some discoveries we made as a result of living through the pandemic. I wonder for you, Larice, what kind of things did you discover in your experience uh, because of the pandemic? One of the primary discoveries for me was how much I really needed to be in physically in church. Oh. Watching online, it just didn't have the same punch. Like I needed to be sitting in the pew. I needed to be having that quiet space. You know, um, at the time, I was the only one in my family going going to church. And it just didn't feel comfortable with me just turning on the computer, sitting in my living room, sitting in my room. I needed to be around other people. I needed to experience the light coming through the stained glass. I needed to um, hear the musical instruments live. Um, I needed to have other believers around me, physically around me. I mean, that's something that I don't think I'll ever take for granted again. I remember the first time we were allowed to sign up. Yeah. And I remember it took me a couple of weeks to be able to get one of the lucky numbers. <laughs> so I was not the only one that was really feeling um, the desire and the pull to come back physically into the location of church. And it's one of those things where it's, it's all the little things now that add up to me. It's the the conversations that people have before church. It's the the hugging, the physical hugging that people get to do now. It's um all the little things that we just all took for granted. We've learned that those can be taken away. And it's just not the same fellowship that we have now. So very nice. I imagine you discovered a few things in the classroom. What did you discover in the midst of having to change the way you teach uh and now has that had effect on how you teach and how you see students learning post this period of last two and a half years of the pandemic i see some good things and i see some not so good things i learned a lot about technology (laughs) (laughs) i can create a video um, and it's actually nice to create a video because we'll still have some digital learning days here and there um, and the videos that I made back in the pandemic, I can actually still use. And so I, fi- I find them and I upload those to Google Classroom and the students can access them. And the benefit of that is they can always go back and look at that. Yeah. It's not just a one-time teach and done and then move on. It's 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 something that they can actually go back and, and take a look at. They can slow it down. And I know for a lot of the students, they did say it was, it was very helpful. Um, now with that, if you don't have availability of wi-fi you're not going to be able to access that so that was you know being in a rural community that was really difficult because a lot of teachers had to physically come to the school to make videos to then put out for their students to watch knowing that half of them weren't going to be able to watch it and so that was there was a lot of frustration with that we were finishing out our the teaching and uh, some of the parents unfortunately found out that the grades were going to go back to whatever the grade was as of the middle of March. So why are we doing this? And unfortunately they told their students that. And so a lot of the kids then started spreading all of that. And so a lot of learning didn't take place, even though it could have. And so that was kind of frustrating for me, but you know, it is what it is. And and the students, most of them really appreciate being back because they, they don't ever want to have to go back through that again. They said it was one of the hardest things they've ever had to do. They couldn't see their friends. They, um, just even talking with somebody 
They really couldn't even do that. So they, they went six months without seeing a lot of their friends. Interestingly enough, a couple weeks ago, the school Wi-Fi just completely went down for half the day. And it's amazing how much we rely on that now. So I had done everything in my bag of tricks for one class. And I was like, <laughs> I have taught for 75 minutes out of a 90-minute class. I literally have nothing else I can do right now. I've gotten ahead in some things. And I was like, I'm, I'm done. And so I said, you know, because we're not, we actually took their phones away this year. The students can have no phones start to finish the class, which has been great. The data f- for that is tremendously helpful. And I've shared that with the students, and they're like, they're not surprised. They said, yeah, we, we needed y'all to take our phones. So for um, the rest of the 15-minute class period, I told my students, and I said, you know what? Against my better judgment, if you've got a phone, let's just go ahead and play on the phones for a little while. Find a game that's appropriate for school. Play your game. Play against somebody else. Play some kind of, you know, word game or something. Do something educational, please. And at least for like five or six minutes. And they were all on their phones. They were they were engaged. They were happy to be able to have <laughs> have their phones. But the ironic thing is, within two or three minutes, they were done with their phones. Then they were actually talking to each other. I looked around the room. There might have been two kids on their phones out of twenty nine. That's a win. They were talking. They were laughing. They were goofing off. They were playing tic tac toe. I mean, it was crazy what they were doing. But they were socializing. <laughs> and so I think they still are coming off of the the post pandemic and um, understanding how important it is to to reach out to each other and to have that social time because you never know if they have to go back under lockdown again. And I think that's in the back of their mind and maybe that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. You know, I hear a lot of similarity, even though the context and the subject matter is different between church and school, but a lot of similarity in the things that were missed and what is valued. Absolutely. I know as part of our church service, you know, we get to reach out and, and talk with people at the beginning of church and, I'm kind of, I participate, but I'm more of an observer at first. And so it's always interesting to me to look around and see the number of people who are smiling. And then they smile the rest of the church service. And I think that's one of the things our church does well. And maybe, maybe 10, 15 years ago, we, we didn't do that. You know, other churches were doing it. We just said, that's that's just not necessarily something we're going to do. And then we started doing it. And then we didn't do it for a couple of weeks. And I think people were like, where's, where's our social time? When do, when do we get to reach out and like talk to, to visitors? And when do we get to see people that maybe we're not in Sunday school with and we see them in church and we want to go and, and say hello before everybody dashes out to go to lunch at 12 o'clock? And so that's one of the things where um, I think generationally, we all need that opportunity to do that. And it's, that's just one of the rewarding things for me. And I can only imagine from a minister's viewpoint, you know, from the front of the church, having y'all be able to see the people smiling and and hugging and and having that social time has got to be just rewarding for really everybody watching that it is and it does spill over it spills over into the rest of the service Uh, it elevates elevates their spirits and their emotions that really comes through in all the other aspects of what we're doing in worship absolutely and i think you know coming into church into the sanctuary, being respectful in the presence of God, all those wonderful, powerful feelings. There's also a joy that needs to be there. And I think that's part of, for me, what that slight little bit of social time promotes. And it puts my heart in a different place. It puts it not where I'm scared or fearful, but I am hopeful and I'm joyful. And I'm at least I'm having some different emotions at that point that 
carry over into the music and into the sermon and into the the children's ministry and that kind of thing. And um, I just think it's a wonderful thing that we're doing at the beginning of the church service. I have some lightning round questions. (laughs) Don't worry. They're not overly personal. What is the most difficult job you've ever had? Oh, the most, uh, this is an easy question. I was a cook and a waitress at Woolworth Lunch Counter. No. For a summer in UGA. And that alone kept me in school. That alone helped me get a job with a marching band over at North Hall up in Gainesville because it got me out of that job. That I didn't know how to cook anyway. <laughs> and I had to take orders and I had to cook and I had to clean. And if you wanted a tip, you had to flirt at least a little bit. And so it was just, I felt grimy every time I left there. But the food was really good. So, And I remember... I would always lie about the liver and onions. The idea of cooking liver and onions just purely <laughs> grossed me out. And so I would always tell people when they wanted that, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. We're fresh out of that. And so the lady that was in charge of the, of the kitchen, she, she was looking at, the, at the, the freezer and she said, we've got a lot of liver and onions. I said, you know, I know a lot of people really just don't like that right now. And she's like, oh, okay. And yeah, I never, I never told her the truth. <laughs> <laughs> that was the hardest I've ever had to work, though. Where is some place that you have never been that you would like to go to? Let's see. I would love to go to Kauai. I've been to to Oahu, and I would love to go to the other islands because they're all so different. So I guess all of the other islands other than Oahu for Hawaii. Nice. Of all the technology you've seen and experienced in your lifetime, which would you say is the most significant? I would probably have to say the cell phone because it, it's so handy and you can take it in anywhere. It's portable. There's a lot of good things that can be done with it. And for I know for me it was a game changer because there's very little that you can't do that's on your phone. It's all always available if you leave a document at home, if you need to take to have an address and need to find a you know where somebody is or where a location where a business is you can always find it on your on your phone a google maps google drive for me the the google aspect of the cell phone is a game changer either a book or a movie or a streaming show that you've experienced lately what would you recommend there's a book by zora neale hurston called their eyes were watching god And it is one that I used to teach when I taught advanced placement literature at Morgan County. And I had never read the book. And it was on on the suggested list. And the students either really, really, really resonated with the book or they really didn't get it. And the ones who did understand the book had some struggles in their own lives. And so it was an opportunity to see somebody else struggle but to see someone absolutely come out on top. And it wasn't any kind of financial on top. It was a self-discovery. And I think a lot of the young women in my class could put themselves in that in the role of the, the lead character. And the movie's actually really good as well. Halle Berry plays the, the lead role in the movie, and it's really well done, follows the book pretty well. And the title again? Their Eyes Were Watching God. It's fantastic. Very good. I may have to go watch it. Uh, I think I would enjoy that. Larice, it has been a real pleasure to have a conversation with you today. I thank you for being here. Thank you, Frank. I've enjoyed it. Larice shared her experience of being invited to church. 
The invitation led to her meaningful involvement in a faith community. Inviting someone to join you at church is not complicated, but it has the power and potential to be transformative. Who do you know that might be waiting on an invitation from you? This is the FBC Athens podcast, Open to Explore, featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. Listen next week as another member joins me for conversations about church, God, the pandemic, and more.